1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: On this episode of FYI, we're going to be speaking about how innovation can gain traction during periods of crisis. So in this case, the novel coronavirus outbreak, COVID-19, is causing a lot of change and disruption within the genomics and biotech industries. And so Ali, my co-analyst, and I are going to be walking through a handful of ways that we think that new innovative approaches to diagnosing disease, as well as preventing disease and treating patients who are already a Afflicted by COVID 19, are beginning to take share and proliferate throughout the globe. And in addition to that, we're going to be talking about not just the technologies, but a handful of companies that are actually enabling this transition. And so, a handful that I want to quickly just highlight are companies like Cirrus, Arcturus, Innovio, and Twist. All of which ARC is an owner of, and we want to just mention these upfront as, as companies that we do own significant portion of the outstanding shares. I'm Simon, one of ARC's genomics analysts, and I focus mostly on DNA sequencing, molecular diagnostics, as well as synthetic biology. And we're joined today by Ali, who I'll let introduce herself.
2: Hi, I'm Allie. I work with Simon as a genomics analyst at ARK Invest, and I focus on stem cell therapy, immunotherapy, and gene editing.
0: So what we wanna get into today is first start a little bit broadly and talk about coronavirus or COVID-19 and introduce and sort of describe how the healthcare infrastructure, specifically biotech, is really enabling us to tackle the issues of diagnosing infection preventing infection as well as treating patients who have unfortunately come down with the disease. And so we're going to be walking through a handful of really new innovative approaches that we think are poised to really take share in this tumultuous time period. And so I think if we want to start on a very high level, this type of turmoil, we think, forces people to think differently, maybe take new strategies or new approaches to dealing with issues. And we can think of no better place that this is actually materializing than the genomic space. And so the first point that I wanna really hone in on is actually DNA sequencing. So we know right at the very end of 2019, the first cases of COVID-19 were appearing in mainland China. And so the first step with dealing with any novel pathogen, whether it's COVID-19 or anything that happens to show up in the future, is understanding the sequence of the pathogen. So by using DNA sequencing, it's a very high-throughput, cost-effective way to look at the sequence of the DNA or RNA sequence of that pathogen. And this is important first and foremost for epidemiologists, the scientists who look at disease and populations and understand things having to do with transmission as well as where the disease potentially originated what types of strains are beginning to break off and how those strains may cause patients to present with different symptoms. So in this case, understanding the viral genome of COVID-19 is actually laying the groundwork for anything that the scientific community works on. Again, whether it's a, a diagnostic test or figuring out the specific kind of genetic susceptibility that COVID has that would make it more amenable to be treated by a certain vaccine or therapy. So that's really the first step in this process. And I think highlighting some of the numbers is actually really, really interesting. So if we zoom out and we go back to the SARS and the MERS epidemics about a decade or so back, one of the interesting things is that it took roughly on the order of five to six months from the first time that a patient was identified to the point where we actually had a genetic sequence, that scaffold being published online. So that was five or six months that we knew about the outbreak, but didn't necessarily have the foundation for being able to develop diagnostics or therapies to attack it. And if you flash forward to coronavirus, it only took a handful of days. I wanna say around two or three days for scientists in China to leverage you know, the democratize cheaper DNA sequencing and actually publish a draft of the viral genome online and another interesting thing that comes about when you look at this is just how strong the bioinformatics infrastructure really is i mean it's a challenge in and of itself to actually sequence anything sequence any genome but being able to parse through it and discover and process and be able to share and network that information worldwide is really something that we want to focus on because It just wasn't necessarily the case a decade or so ago. So, that's the first thing that I want to point out because it really does enable all of the other work that scientists have been doing to be able to to help the community contend with COVID 19. And so, following along on the journey of a patient or or an individual that is kind of going through this process, I think the next stage that we land at is diagnostics. while well, the tools that we've needed to diagnose a, a patient or to be able to, to detect the presence of a virus in a patient have been around for a while, and I'll, I'll name a few. One is called real-time PCR or quantitative PCR. This is a way that we can take a patient sample and kind of look at the molecules that are inside of it and be able to say, okay, well, here is the presence of a virus, and we can, you know, sort that patient throughout the rest of their clinical management but there are a handful of new developments that we think are, are really important. And I, one of the ones I want to identify is something called synthetic biology. So I just talked about DNA sequencing. You can think of DNA sequencing more as the reading of DNA, the reading of RNA, and synthetic biology is all about writing DNA and RNA. So what exactly does that mean and, and why is it important to developing diagnostics? Well. What's important to understand is that when you are building a diagnostic test, whether it's sequencing-based or PCR-based, like I mentioned, it's really important to be able to kind of validate a new test and make sure that it's quality controlled and that there are no differences if you are working with one population or another population, or even in a high-throughput center, that every batch of tests that the lab is churning out every day, that there's no sort of quality control difference there. And so the base of being able to quality control a diagnostic test is having something called a a spike in control. And basically what that is, is a tiny little fragment of the viral genome that we have written or we've synthesized using synthetic DNA technology, and we can spike it in or or insert it into the diagnostic workflow. And you can almost calibrate the instruments to know, okay, well, what's virus, what's not? Or if you have a very complicated biofluid sample that has a lot of either contamination or other sorts of artifacts that you don't have any sort of issues with the sensitivity or the specificity of the test. So a really good example of this is Twist Biosciences that is using their silicon-based DNA synthesis platform to very quickly and at scale manufacture these viral RNA probes that are basically just little snippets of the COVID-19 virus, which if we kind of go back to what we said at the beginning with sequencing being the foundation for all of this, you imagine that once Twist was able to access the viral genome, they were able to kind of, within an extremely short time frame, manufacture these controls such that every single company or government lab that's working on diagnostics is actually able to kind of harness these spike in controls and ensure that their tests are are accurate when patients are, are finally able to undergo them. And so I think those two things together are are really, really interesting as far as what can be done with understanding the root cause and sort of the dynamics of this novel coronavirus, as well as something that is new and novel, synthetic biology, in terms of describing how we're able to just very quickly manufacture these different diagnostic tests. So with that, I want to just quickly hand it over to Ali so that she can zoom in a little bit more on the preventative medicine, vaccination, as well as different therapeutic approaches that are being applied to this strain of coronavirus.
2: Yeah, thanks, Simon. With that, I just want to say innovation gains traction in tumultuous times is exactly what we're talking about and what Simon is describing. So to further that, I think it would be helpful to take a step back. And when we talk about the coronavirus, we have to remember that they have a protein, which is called a spike protein, and it's actually on the surface of the virus cell. That will bond the virus to the host cell. And so essentially what we're trying to do is stop that process or change that process in some capacity with all the things that we're going to talk about. So traditionally, we would have viral vaccines. So what are we doing in the space that's a little different and innovative at this time? So traditional vaccines would use the virus itself. We're seeing some differentiation in the space right now. We're seeing DNA vaccines, RNA vaccines, and even RNA self replicating vaccines. So I'm going to give just a few examples of each just to give a little color to it. So the first example I'm going to talk about is Moderna. Moderna works off a sequence of the virus's genetic code. So the vaccine actually works to get the body cells to produce an antibody. An antibody is a protein that will fight the virus, and that will create an immune response. This has actually been showing some promise in animal models. And interestingly enough, Moderna actually began their human testing on their phase one trial of mRNA-1273. They did so in the U.S. at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute, which is located in Seattle. That will be governed by the FDA since it's in the U.S. The trial currently... Currently, is enrolled 45 healthy volunteers and the age range is around 18 to 55. This will continue over the next six weeks and we look forward to hearing more information about it as it becomes available. How this trial is going to work is you're going to get an injection on day one and then on day 29. All people in this trial are going to be followed for 12 months after the second injection. There are a lot of companies that are looking at RNA as a potential vaccine for the coronavirus. So other companies include BioNTech, they're looking in China, CureVac in Germany, and Arcturus, who are working on a vaccine with a partnership with Duke NUS, or the National University of Singapore, to create a vaccine that. Something interesting about them that is innovative is it's self-replicating RNA. So what that means is that you would inject a very small amount of mRNA into the arm, and we're talking about micrograms in terms of how small it will be. The antigen will sort of develop over a few weeks, and it will continue to do so. The hope for Arcturus is that they're able to give this injection as a single injection, which would mean there would not be a necessity to have a booster. This would have tremendous value for our current community and what we're looking for. For scaling, this would be huge. It would mean that you would be able to use a lot less doses to vaccinate a lot more people. Further to that, it would be one-day vaccination versus the 30-day, which is the first vaccination and then the booster on day 29. Additionally, regulatory would be accelerated, manufacturing would be accelerated, and the feasibility of manufacturing would be a lot easier. So that's something that is quite innovative that's happening right now in the space. Now, another way that we're innovating currently is DNA vaccines. An example of that is Inovio. About three hours after China published the sequence of the virus online, Inovio had INO4800. They developed this vaccine using the virus's sequence. So the vaccine clearly is different because it uses DNA medicine. Inovio essentially delivers optimized plasmids directly into the cells There, they'll begin replicating and strengthening the body's natural responses or the immune system. So, another thing that we should discuss is antiviral therapies. So, there are a few that have come out and they are interesting because a lot of them are being repurposed from things that already exist. Regeneron would be an example of that. They used their previous technology for Ebola, which is currently under review by the FDA. So they're working on an antibody treatment that would use the virus itself. Other such examples are chloroquine, which is an old malaria drug. That works by actually interfering with the virus's ability to bind to cells. We've seen research on this that's coming from China, which shows that treating patients that have pneumonia associated with COVID-19 may shorten the hospital stay for these patients and improve their outcomes. Approximately right now, there are more than 20 ongoing clinical trials in China and more to start globally as we continue to understand the benefits of this. We also know that Gilead is working on remdesivir, which is a previous drug utilized for Ebola. So there's a lot happening in the space currently. The only other thing I'd like to mention is twofold. One, innovation is accelerating timelines with the FDA, which is a governmental body and difficult to really innovate, but they're breaking down barriers to treatments and they're giving help in a timely manner, which is so so important at this time. Lastly, EverlyWell, which is an at-home testing company, just today announced that at-home kits will be available for coronavirus COVID-19 as of March 23rd. The initial supply will be 30,000 and approximately at $135 with no profit to EverlyWell. I think everyone is just trying to innovate and continue to accelerate what we can do to help as a society. Simon, I'll leave it back to you to continue this discussion.
0: Sure. Thanks, Ali. So in addition to everything that we just covered in terms of of DNA sequencing, diagnostics, as well as different strategies to prevent infection and treat patients who are already afflicted with COVID-19, there are a handful of other auxiliary areas that we think are really well poised to capture a lot of share and be galvanized by this sort of international crisis. And the first one is telemedicine. So conceptually, this is an infrastructure that allows patients to interact with their general practitioner or primary care physician through an online portal instead of being in a position where they'd have to physically go in to the hospital or to the clinic and risk exposure. So this is Especially important for people who are immunocompromised, or the elderly, or any other group that is at a supernormal risk for either infection or mortality by virtue of of COVID nineteen. So, telemedicine, an example of a, of a company in the space, is Teladoc, which has already been accelerating over the past few years in in areas such as ambulatory care, as well as behavioral medicine and and chronic medicine. But we think that this sort of issue is really bringing to light how much better telemedicine is at, at handling some of these high traffic high spike issues such as you know seasonal flus for example or in this case you know many different people wanting to learn more about covid-19 or whether or not they may be sick with it and so there are a lot of huge advantages with telemedicine in terms of its ability to be integrated with electronic medical records for instance which allows physicians to input patient data and prescribe out different medications and makes it easier for them to monitor the dosage for a patient over a a long period of time for any sort of prescription that they write. And we've seen the administration has supported and helped the adoption of telemedicine along by allowing for greater coverage, for instance, for the elderly through Medicare and Medicaid, As well as allocating funds for the backbone infrastructure, such as the issues with getting telemedicine out to rural areas in terms of broadband connections or things like that. So, we think this is only going to continue after the COVID 19 epidemic begins to abate, just because these types of accounts and interactions are are generally very sticky. And so, we think this is more like a secular acceleration for the adoption of virtual care as more people get accustomed to using it to help supplement the decision to be able to physically go in for many different types of ailments. And we think, again, this is broadly applicable outside of just COVID-19 or the standard flu and may eventually begin to proliferate into other areas as well. Again, things like behavioral, psychiatric, and chronic disease management moving forward. So in addition to telemedicine, two other areas that I want to quickly just highlight are transplant care for patients who have undergone organ transplants, as well as the safety of our blood supply. So I'll quickly just start on transplant care. You know, you have to realize once a patient actually receives an organ transplant, they're going to be put on immunosuppressive medication to lessen the likelihood that that organ is rejected by the body's native immune system. And so as these patients move through their life, they're kind of on this ebb and flow sort of structure where the doctor is constantly dialing up or down the amount of suppressive medication to balance the side effects of being in that immunocompromised state, but also trying to mitigate the likelihood that the patient actually rejects their organ, either is required to get put on dialysis or or maybe potentially get another transplant. And this is a really large percentage of the population that we don't necessarily immediately think about but that is actually in a a lot of danger from infectious diseases such as COVID-19. And one of the things that we were really happy to see this past week is that a a company called CareDX launched a new product called RemoteTrack that is for basically mobile blood monitoring for the assays that CareDX has developed. So quickly, just to maybe zoom back and kind of set the stage for why this is so important, one of the ways in which doctors are trained to monitor for active rejection of an organ is to perform a set of, of serial biopsies, You know, physical tissue biopsies, where you'll sample the organ. So for example, maybe a, a patient got a, a kidney transplant and they have to undergo a handful of puncture biopsies to make sure that the donor kidney is not being rejected. So CareDx has leveraged sequencing to be able to do something called a liquid biopsy instead of a, a tissue biopsy. So in this case, that involves taking a, a non-invasive blood draw and amplifying uh, and looking for both donor-derived, meaning from the organ donor, and the patient's own cell-free DNA or small fragments of DNA that are circulating in the bloodstream. And by comparing those things, you can get a better grasp on when or if a patient may reject their organ. But that still requires a patient ostensibly to go into a draw site, like a clinic, and, and get their blood drawn to enable the company to process that sample. So. The new service, Remote Track, sends out individuals, sends out physicians to a patient's home, and they're able to kind of collect blood there and then send it back for analysis instead of having to risk that immunocompromised patient physically leaving their home to go into a draw site. So this is yet another example of both really new innovative techniques with regard to sequencing and enriching cell-free DNA, but also the ability to focus in on patients who are immunocompromised and be able to, to give them a service that, you know, is extremely useful in this scenario, but eventually may stick around as more patients opt to do it this way instead of physically going in in the future. And on the topic of blood, I want to just quickly end by talking a little bit about blood safety in the wake of not just COVID-19, but any new emerging pathogen. And so generally speaking, whenever there is a novel pathogen, a a virus, a bacterial outbreak, one of the first things that happens is blood centers and hospitals will choose to defer blood donors in mass to avoid the risk of contaminating the blood supply. And one of the reasons why this happens is that screening potential donors is actually kind of non-trivial. Typically, there is some degree of latency between identifying a a new pathogen and and developing some sort of nucleic acid test through which the blood centers and hospitals can test and screen donors to see who is potentially infected and who is not. And if there's anything that we've seen from this specific outbreak, it's that the testing is in short supply. So it's, it's unrealistic to expect that blood centers and hospitals have these things freely available to screen donors in and out. So the usual best practice is just to defer, defer, defer. But there's actually a consequence to doing that. And that is basically just a massive systemic blood shortage, which affects the hospital's ability to not only to treat patients of trauma who have a high degree of blood loss, but also patients who are undergoing routine surgery, where it's it's really important to have blood as a backup in case there's any sort of hemorrhage or, or bleeding event. And so what we've seen is many countries are actually completely canceling or postponing elective and absolutely non-essential surgeries for this reason exactly. It's just blood is in very, very short supply. And there's a fear that if you know an infected individual is donating blood, that potentially a large amount of blood could be contaminated. And- you know, by virtue of that, transfused into other patients where you'd have a runaway infection scenario. So instead, we're seeing more widespread adoption of, instead of reactive approaches, like I just sort of described with a nucleic acid test, but proactive approaches, ones that involve the elimination or the inactivation of pathogens without needing necessarily some a priori knowledge of the genetic structure of whatever pathogen it is, And this brings me to the topic of pathogen inactivation which is a technology that is really being improved and developed on by a company called cirrus their pathogen and activation technology is called intercept and conceptually what it does is it uses a combination of a, a chemical compound called a sorolin combined with uv light which binds to any nucleic acid so whether it's dna or rna it binds onto that molecule and effectively prevents it from replicating and growing in the body. So it's a really good way to inactivate or destroy any sort of pathogen, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, or any sort of microorganism. And the best thing about this is that it is, by its very nature, proactive. As long as you're running donor blood through, ostensibly you can actually accept blood from an infected individual and be able to pass it through Intercept and transfuse it into a patient safely. So it's a way that we can contend with these new novel emerging diseases, but at the same time ensure that we have a, a shield to protect our blood supply and so that we can continue to perform necessary surgery as needed. And th- this strategy is already being kind of widely employed in nations like France and Switzerland, and we think that is is one reason why these countries potentially could be better insulated from, you know again, having to cancel essential surgeries because of the outbreak of covid nineteen. So, Generally speaking, if we kind of zoom back here and, and, and look at the entire discussion broadly, we think that instances like this, these sort of compressed, tumultuous time periods where people are having to throw out how they've always done things and, and think about things in a new and different light, this is actually one of the best times wow. for innovative new technologies to really make themselves known and be able to capture a certain level of, of supernormal market share. So, for all of the things we've described, like sequencing being democratized and that cost curve really driving down from billions of dollars per genome back in the early 2000s to less than a thousand dollars today, as well as things like the bioinformatic infrastructure for being able to network and communicate these new breakthroughs such that the entire scientific community can work together and work in tandem to create diagnostics that are being empowered by synthetic DNA controls for quality control and testing validation and and target enrichment and things like that, as well as what Ali walked through with regard to DNA vaccines, RNA vaccines, self-replicating vaccines, which actually lessen the burden of manufacturing by virtue of being able to replicate again inside the body in vivo, as well as some of the excellent antiviral therapies that we see potentially are getting used off-label to treat patients that are very, very sick. And lastly, you know, again, the infrastructure for being able to have primary care physicians and patients be able to interface online instead of having to risk a scenario where they are spreading the disease, you know, in large groups, as well as different techniques for ensuring that small portions of the population, such as those who've undergone solid organ transplants, are are insulated from being in a scenario where they could potentially be infected and pass away because of exposure to not just this disease, but any disease in the future that would affect someone who's immunocompromised. And lastly, blood safety. You know, blood transfusions are one of, if not the most widely performed medical procedure in the world. I mean, generally speaking, 70% of us will have a blood transfusion at some point in our lifetime. And so being able to take a proactive strategy using novel techniques such as pathogen reduction is a really good way that we can not just contend with this virus, but any sort of pathogenic or or viral outbreak that happens in the future. And so these are just some of the areas that we're focused on and that we're very excited about with regard to genomics. And we think that, again, this period of crisis will help bring these different technological approaches to the forefront and hopefully begin to galvanize this secular shift to new innovative approaches to tackling disease, both on the front of of diagnosing it and preventing it, but eventually to the stage of, of treating disease.